Welcome to Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and if you are listening to this, I will be reviewing Sundog from the collection Four Past Midnight, and it is the uh, last review in a series of redo- reviews I have done for Four Past Midnight, which have included The Langoliers, the, sh- uh, the novella, The Langoliers, the TV miniseries, Secret Window, Secret Garden, the novella, Secret Window, the Johnny Depp starring movie, The Library Policeman, and then uh, I'm concluding with The Sundog. Um, <clears throat> but before I get into The Sundog, what I want to do, I want to um, just read uh, a listener email because I haven't really been reading too many listener emails, and I, I want to make sure that if you take the time to, to write to me, I, I just want to make sure that I share it um, on air. So um, first we have um, a message from Andrea who writes, Dear Constant Reader, I'm sure you get this a lot, but I just felt that I had to reach out and thank you for your podcast. I've been a King fan since I first read It in sixth grade. From that point on, I was hooked. I've read all of his works and watched all of the movie TV adaptations, the good and the bad. Although it's hard to pick a favorite King novel, I think I'd have to go with Eyes of the Dragon. My favorite Dark Tower novel is either Drawing of the Three or Wastelands. Like you, I'm enjoying listening to a good podcast during a long commute or while at the gym. Being a fellow King fan, I'm sure you've noticed the podcast world seems to be sorely lacking a good Stephen King podcast. I've listened to the SK Fancast, which I did enjoy, but there aren't many episodes, and it doesn't seem like he's putting out any new content. After starting out by listening to your review of Revival and then going back and listening from the beginning, I have to say yours is the best Stephen King podcast I've ever heard. I like the way you analyze his works. I like your music choices for each episode. I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice and it's the same way I feel and I find myself talking back to my radio in the car in agreement. I think what part of I'm sorry I think part of what draws me to King is how so many of his works tie into one another. It's fun to pick out all the references and hidden gems as if we're in on the joke. I don't know about you but I've always thought that part of the reason why some of his movie or TV adaptations miss the mark is because he provides so much detail and paints such a vivid picture in your minds that whatever they're going to portray on screen isn't going to measure up especially if it's a long work like The Stand or It. His shorter works that have been adapted, I think, have been much more successful. The Mist, um, up till the end anyway, Secret Window, Stand By Me. Um, What is your favorite Stephen King novel, short story, favorite King movie adaptation? I truly loved your revival review. The ending of that book was simply terrifying, and when you read the opening excerpt, knowing how it ends, I literally got goosebumps. So I want to say thank you and say keep up the good work. I look forward to listening. Long days and pleasant nights. So, Andrea, thank you for this really well-written, thought-out you know, email. Um, I just, I really appreciate uh, the time that you spent and thank you for the the very, very kind words. Um, And I agree with a lot of what you say um, in terms of what makes a good Stephen King adaptation um, and what a lot of people miss is is that attention to detail and how you can't really get into detail, like you said, with those, with those longer works. Um, Now for my favorite King novel, it's It, um, as evidenced by the, the, um, 
a 4.5 uh, episode uh, analysis of the uh, of the work. Um, it is definitely up there. Uh, Needful Things is up there. Desperation and the Regulators are all up there. Um, and my favorite King movie or TV adaptation, um, this one's controversial um, because I think that The Shining is is just an incredible movie. I think that's one of the greatest movies ever made, and it just so happened that it was based off Stephen King's second novel, um, or sorry, third novel. Uh, and I know that it's split down the middle. People either love it if you're a Stephen King fan, or if you're a Stephen King fan, you hate it because it's not like Stephen King's book. I know that Stephen King can't stand it, um, but it's one that I think is incredible. I also think that Frank Darabont did an incredible job with The Mist as well, which is a much more faithful adaptation of a Stephen King work than The Shining is. But uh, but there's good ones out there. I mean, that's for sure. Um, but I would say that my favorite Stephen King um, novel is It. I just, like I've stated, it's the culmination of so many of his themes and what he was working on that particular time um and looking at you know stories like the body retroactively that makes that particular novella look like a prototype and a rough draft for what he would later perfect with it so anyone out there that hasn't listened to my it review it's on it's on my my podcast feed so you should be able to find it it's uh there's, um i review the novel in three parts, part one, part two, part three, breaks down and it's an analysis of the novel. Um, there is um, an episode that is dedicated to the connections to the Dark Tower. And then if you're a fan of the, the movie, there's a review of um, the movie starring Tim Curry. So Andrea, thank you so much for, for writing in. Please feel free to, to write in again. Um, I look forward to hearing you. Okay, everyone, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to... Um, get into the sun dog the final novella in the collection of four past midnight um and as king states in his introduction the sun dog serves as the second entry into what he refers to as an unofficial castle rock trilogy which began with the dark half and concludes with needful things the story isn't much of a glue between the two books as it is a transition piece that allows the arrival of leland gaunt in needful things so from wikipedia Kevin Delavan receives a Sun 660 Polaroid camera for his 15th birthday. He soon notices that there is something strange about the camera. The only photographs it produces are of a malicious, feral black dog that seems to move closer with each shot as though to attack the person who is taking the pictures. On a recommendation, Kevin seeks help from Reginald Pop Merrill, the wealthy and unscrupulous owner of a junk shop in the town of Castle Rock, Maine. While just as unsettled by the phenomenon as Kevin, Merrill sees an opportunity to further his own interests, namely selling the camera to a paranormal enthusiast for a great deal of money. He manages to switch out the camera for another of the same model which Kevin destroys. Much to his dismay, however, Merrill cannot rid himself of the sun, as prospective buyers either dismiss it outright as a fake or decline to purchase it due to the discomfort and ease they feel upon viewing the photographs. Furthermore, Merrill finds himself increasingly, increasingly compelled to use the sun, the dog slowly advancing as it transforms into something more savage and monstrous with every picture he takes. In the meantime, Kevin is plagued by recurring nightmares about the dog. Realizing that Merrill tricked him and the sun was not destroyed, he sets out to prevent Merrill from taking any more pictures for fear that the dog will break through into the real world. By this point, the camera's influence on over Merrill has caused him to lose his grip on sanity. After waking up in the middle of the night to find himself holding the sun and repeatedly pressing its trigger, he resolves to smash it in the morning. 
However, he hallucinates that one of the cuckoo clocks hanging on the wall of his story is really the camera and smashes it instead. Guided by the illusion that he is repairing a clock at his workbench, Meryl starts taking pictures again. At this moment, Kevin and his father arrive to comfort Meryl, but they're too late to stop him. The dog begins to tear its way out of the final photograph, killing Meryl in the process. Inspired by a scene from one of his nightmares, Kevin has bought another son along with him, and just as the dog is about to release itself, he takes its picture, trapping it once more in the Polaroid world. In the epilogue, Kevin gets a computer for his following birthday. In order to test its word processor function, he types the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Rather than a printout of this text, the page reads, the dog is loose again, it's not sleeping, it's not lazy, it's coming for you, Kevin, it's very hungry, and it's very angry. First of all, this novella makes me sad. Um, it's a concept that just doesn't hold weight in 2015. A Polaroid camera is as useful today as a horse and buggy on a highway. Um, it's not just about the camera that seems so outdated either, but so many aspects of life that the Polaroid brings. For instance, after taking his first picture, there's a moment where everyone waits for the picture to develop. That's a very specific emotion that arrives in that small moment of waiting that just doesn't exist anymore. In 2015, instant gratification has eliminated that sensation. Now, this isn't a criticism on today's technology. I mean, I love where technology is, but there's just something missing nowadays. A little flavor that you won't find in any of our current dishes. The fact that the entire novella is based around a Polaroid makes me wonder um, about King's later novel, Cell. Every now, even now that the novel is starting to, um, I'm sorry, even now that novel is starting to buckle under the advancement of growing technology. You know, only nine years old, the novel doesn't ring as true nowadays as it did back then. First of all, the novel, the novelty of walking around talking on your cell phone has peaked, so the pulse sent out through the phone that turns everyone into a madman wouldn't affect the numbers in 2015 as it did in 2006. If you walk through a crowd, you won't see many people talking into a phone. You'll see a majority of the crowd staring at their phone screens, but not actually talking. I don't even know why we call them cell phones anymore. I mean, how many cell phones are in the general population as opposed to smartphones? I mean, even the title cell is growing rapidly outdated. Anyway, back to Sundog. Kevin receives his birthday present, his Polaroid, which he discovers only takes the same picture over and over again. He takes it to Pop Merrill, the owner of the Emporium Galorium, awesome name for a store, by the way, who tells him he can't fix it. Fix what? Well, the fact that there's a dog in each of the Polaroid's pictures. It takes King 20 pages 20 pages to reveal that the Polaroid takes pictures of a black dog. I'm all with drawing out a reveal for mystery, but in a short story, this seems like a lot of buildup. You know, with that said, the premise is intriguing. It's like a prototype of the ring, I guess. You know, especially when they, they Pop is able to um, put the pictures together and make a videotape of it. You know, just like watching it on the screen and the herky-jerky motion is just very, very reminiscent <coughs> of the ring. With the premise firmly established, King speaks to us with Pop Merrill as proxy, guiding us into the realm of the supernatural. Pop knows exactly what town he lives in, so he isn't going to dismiss the camera as a hoax. Witnessing the picture with his eyes, he simply acknowledges that something is occurring outside normal conventions. Pop and Kevin give a, have a fun, spooky conversation of haunted voice recorders, Ouija boards, and strange photographs. King dangles a mystery in front of us, the knowledge that the photographs aren't the same. And Kevin agrees to take more photographs as he realizes that the shadow they see in the picture is of whoever is standing holding the camera in hand. King plays with this overarching connective theme of time by mentioning how in the world of these Polaroids, time was passing at a different speed than Kevin's own. 
and the story itself functions within the theme, as well as look towards the future of Castle Rock with needful things. Um, Kevin realizes that the dog is more real than anything else in the in the photographs, um, which can be found in the description on page six hundred and forty-one. It wasn't the idea, but a simple certainty. It had to do with the odd flatness Polaroids always seemed to have with the way they showed you things only in two dimensions, although all photographs did that. It was just that other photographs seemed to at least suggest a third dimension, even those taken with a simple Kodak 110. The things in his photographs, photographs which showed things they had never seen through the sun's viewfinder or anywhere else for that matter, were the same way, flatly, unapologetically, two-dimensional except for the dog. The dog wasn't flat. The dog wasn't meaningless. A thing you could recognize, but which had no emotional impact. The dog not only seemed to suggest three dimensions, but to really have them, the way a hologram seems to really have them, or one of those 3D movies where you have to wear special glasses to reconcile the double images. It's not a Polaroid dog, Kevin thought, and it doesn't belong in the Polaroid world that we take pictures of. That's crazy. I know it is, but I know it's also true. What does it mean? Why is my camera taking pictures of it over and over? And what Polaroid man or Polaroid woman is snapping pictures of it? Does he or she even see it? If it is three-dimensional dog in a two-dimensional world, maybe he or she doesn't see it, can't see it. They say that for us, time is the fourth dimension, and we know it's there, but we can't see it. We can't even really feel it pass, although sometimes, especially when we're bored, I guess it seems like we can so what is great about that is he also speaks about time here. You know, he's, he's speaking about, it goes back to his thesis on, on time and, um, you know, the, the malleability of time. Kevin is rightfully creeped out and threatened by the fact that this dog is moving in the picture and has started to turn towards the camera, clearly with murderous intent. Worse for Kevin, it's wearing the necktie around its neck that his aunt has made for him. Pop switches out the cameras so that Kevin thinks they destroy the real one, and that night he has a dream. Now, this took me by complete surprise. Now, I've read The Sun Dog twice, so this is the third time, and this is the first time I picked up on the fact that Kevin dreams of Oatly from The Talisman, and it isn't just Oatly. It's almost a recreation of Jack Sawyer's experience, now through the eyes of Kevin. For one... You know, he's looking for work just like Jack had been, and then he encounters the fushing thief, Wino, just like Jack had. You know, and then transitions into your typical King Prophetic dream with symbols and foreshadowing. And then we check back in with Pop, um, you know, who thinks of all of the mad hatters he knows, people with a deep belief in the paranormal. Uh, the, the scenarios that unfold are original, meaning they do not reference his works, but some of them seem to tip a hat to them. A possessed car, a vicious cat, haunted houses, um, and, uh, you know, could all be winks here uh, at either, you know, Christine, a possessed car, Pet cemetery, and, you know, with the haunted house, either Salem's Lot or The Shining. Pop's greed, you know, becomes his undoing. Uh, as he tries to sell the camera to his mad hatters, he realizes that with each picture taken, the time on the other side is speeding up. The dog is now approaching the camera and changing as it approaches. It was impossible to say how. His eyes hurt, caught between what they should be seeing and what they were seeing, and in the end, 
The only handle he could find was a very small one. It was as if someone had changed the lens on the camera from the normal one to a fisheye, so that the dog's forehead with its clots of tangled fur somehow seemed to bulge and recede at the same time, and the dog's murderous eyes seemed to have taken on filthy, barely visible glimmers of red, like the sparks of a Polaroid flash sometimes puts in people's eyes. The dog's body seemed to have elongated, but not thinned. If anything, it seemed thicker, not fatter, but more heavily muscled, and its teeth were bigger, longer, sharper. Though Pop realizes that the dog is changing and speeding up, it doesn't stop him from snapping pictures to try and pawn off the camera. When given the chance to leave behind, his pride wins out, and the next thing he knows, he's sleepwalking and snapping pictures. What Pop doesn't realize is that the camera has glamoured him. He is now under its thrall. King provides an eight-page scene in which Pop buys film for the camera, eight pages where he dutifully imbues it with menace, but still, it's eight pages of a man buying film. We get a sense of how insane everyday moments in Castle Rock can be. For instance, when... Um, the, the girl who just sold Pop, his film, is then interrogated by a manic Kevin who screams at his father to buy another camera because my life depends on it. When the characters within the Stephen King novel bump into peripheral characters who then watch them act like they're from a Stephen King novel, it just makes the scene funny. The end comes with the camera melting over Pop's hands and then the sun dog is born from one of the Polaroids. Uh, King turns Kev's new camera into a weapon. Photographers will know that it's imperative to wait for the right moment to capture the right image, and King plays with that concept here with life or death results, which is a lot of fun. So now I'm going to break down the Stephen Kingisms, which are the tricks and traits and tropes of Stephen King's works. Um, the first one here is evil dogs. Um, here we have the sun dog before we've seen it with Cujo. Number two is the nightmare. Um, every Stephen King story must include the nightmare. Uh, number three is a Lovecraft tribute. Um, at one point, Pop thinks about um, the Mad Hatter he knew from Dunwich, Mass, a town that only exists in Lovecraftian lore and home of the Dunwich Horror. He also makes mention to Arkham. Now, Lovecraft was a huge inspiration for Stephen King. Now it's time for the Easter eggs, the shout-outs, and the references to other Stephen King's works. I mean, and the first one is the big one. I mean, it's the fact that this takes place in Castle Rock. Um, Castle Rock has been the setting of um, the Dead Zone and Cujo and the Body and uh, Grandma and Mrs. Todd's Shortcut um, and the Dark Half and soon to be found in Needful Things. And in it, I mean, we see a lot of our characters that we've seen before. Andy Clutterbuck is mentioned. Norris Ridgwick is mentioned. Um, Alan Pangborn is mentioned. The Mellow Tiger <coughs> is mentioned. So it's not just a mention of Castle Rock. It's populated by the characters that we've encountered before and will again. Number two is Pop Merrill. Um, now, this is Ace Merrill's uncle. And Pop functions in this story as the shadow of um, the, the strange photographer within the, the Polaroid world. In this story, we see the shadow, but not he who casts the shadow. It's the foreshadowing of the coming of Leland Gaunt, who moves into Pop Merrill's place and will similarly learn things about the townsfolk during exchanges of favors. 
Nature abhors a vacuum, and Pop's absence leaves room for a similar sort to take his place. If you look at the history of Castle Rock, you could make the argument that it's simply the same energy, the same evil. Cujo, after all, wasn't really just a rabid dog. It was the return of the murderous, monstrous spirit of Frank Dodd from the Dead Zone. Similarly, the coming of Leland Gaunt, who trades in people's souls, feels like Pop received a promotion and came back to town a richer, more respected man. Speaking of which, um, King makes the specific mention of Ace Merrill, who had been busted by Sheriff Pangborn from the Dark Half. Um, this bit of knowledge sets up conflict for needful things. So Ace Merrill um, was the bully found within the pages of the body, and Sheriff Pangborn was um, one of the uh, supporting characters from the Dark Half. Uh, Shawshank Prison is mentioned. Um, that's where Ace was locked up. Um, King teases the romance of Polly and Alan and confirms the death of Alan's wife, which was foreshadowed in the dark half, and sadly, uh, the death of his son, which had not been foreshadowed. He mentioned Polly's arthritis, which will serve as a major plot point in Needful Things. King even states that Polly is a woman that we'll have to speak of of another time, which will come in Needful Things. Number six is Oatly. Like I mentioned, Kevin has a dream about the nightmare town from the talisman, and then, of course, um, if you're going to be writing a story about uh, an evil dog and you're going to set it within Castle Rock, I mean, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, King very explicitly states the events of Cujo and what happened to Sheriff Bannerman at the, the Camber Place um, where the boy died. So there's definitely a reference to Cujo there. So that's all I've got. Um, it, it's not... I, I, if you are a fan of the Castle Rock stories, then the Sun Dog is fun. I think that the pacing in the novella is very, very weird. Like I said, it takes 20 pages to get to the reveal that the photographs that they're looking at are of a dog. It takes eight pages for Pop Merrill to buy um, some Polaroid film. So the pacing is kind of all over the place. I think that it could be tightened up just a little bit. But I love how he's just setting the groundwork for what's going to happen in Needful Things. The the dog itself um, coming through the, the picture like a horrible beast from hell, that in of itself is foreshadowing and like I said earlier that we don't see the photographer we just see the shadow so um, the shadow in of itself that that's kind of like what the sun dog is and the sun dog is the shadow to the photographer who will ultimately be revealed to be Leland Gaunt not that Leland Gaunt is taking pictures it's just that he's the 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 symbol uh, the the metaphor that the metaphor of the, the the photographer okay everyone that's all I got now uh, make sure that you stick around next week as I get into Needful Things, uh, the which has been billed as the last Castle Rock story. So uh, make sure that you stick around for that. If you have not done so already, please feel free to subscribe on iTunes, write a review on iTunes, um, or you can just feel free to uh, to write in and share your thoughts at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com um, or follow me on Instagram, uh, Tumblr, uh, Twitter, and Facebook. And I will see you all here, same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast. Yeah.